Please turn your attention to Genesis 39 in our study of the life of Joseph. We come this morning to Genesis 39. Let me read it for us this morning. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he trusted to his care everything he owned. For the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard my scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to, make, to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet us now in your word. Make your presence known to us. Let us hear your voice. We pray that we would have open ears and humble hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, spring and through the summer, we're going to study the life of Joseph, as you know if you've been here. And as I have suggested and named this series, it is a story of indestructible hope. And I'm suggesting that when we learn to see our lives through the lens of the life of Joseph, we also can live into 
this story of indestructible hope. That's my hope in the series, is that we will learn to live with this kind of hope undergirding us, just as, as Joseph had. Last week, we took a little detour from the life of Joseph. If you were here, we looked at Genesis 38, which was about the life of Judah and Tamar, which is woven into Joseph's life. But now we return to the life of Joseph proper in Genesis 39, and verse 1, which you just heard, picks up the story. Joseph is sold off into slavery and taken to Egypt. Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, buys him from the Ishmaelite traders. And if you're, you've read this chapter before, we often read this chapter as kind of a morality tale, how to, how to say no to temptation, how to resist temptation. And, and that's there. We'll learn from that. But I think the theme of the chapter runs a little deeper than that. I would suggest to you that the theme of this chapter is captured by a recurring phrase. I don't know if you heard it. That bookends this chapter. It's in verses 2 and, verses, and verse 3, and then at the end of the chapter, it's in verse 21 and verse 23. It's this little phrase that says, the Lord was with Joseph. That's the constant drumbeat through this, this chapter, is the Lord was with Joseph. This chapter is about the rise and fall of Joseph, and yet God's presence with him. The Lord is present with Joseph in every season of his life. And the question I'd like to consider with you this morning is this. What sustains you through the seasons of life? Point your attention to the skip laurels by the side of the parking lot. Maybe you haven't noticed them, but they're skip laurels right alongside the fence. And uh, this winter, they were not looking so good. I mean, I, you know, even accounting for winter dormancy, they did not look very good. There were no, no leaves. Uh, it, the plants had all turned brown, and it looked like there was zero life. Again, even accounting for winter dormancy, these, these plants looked like they were going to die, and we thought we'd have to dig them up and replace them this spring. But lo and behold, as we've seen happen so often, early in the spring, there were these little green buds on the branches. That an, an indication that there still was life in these plants. And now, of course, if you look at them, they're green and healthy. Because apparently, even though we didn't see it, they had a root system, an inner life that enabled them to survive the winter just fine. And I ask us this morning, what is your root system that enables you to survive the seasons of life? For some people, for a lot of people, I think it's money. If I can just save up enough money, right? If I can just have enough of a savings account, if I can just have a, a big nest egg, I'll be set. I'll be, I'll be ready for anything that life throws at me. For a lot of people, their, their root system is their family, and that's a pretty good one. You know, if I, if I have a, my family around me, I mean, blood's thicker than water, my family's always going to stand by me. If I have my family, I can pretty much survive anything that life throws at me. For some people, it's very practical. It's a, it's a generator. It's, it's water and a food supply. It's being able to live off the grid. It's emergency preparation. And, and if you do those things, you say to yourself, I can, I can take anything. Anything that happens, I'll be ready. Genesis 39 shows us what it looks like to have your root system in God. Genesis 39 shows us that it's God who can sustain us through the, the seasons of life. He's the, he's the best root system to sustain us through anything that life throws at us. And what I think Joseph does here, he models for us three seasons in which the Lord can be with us and sustain us. There's the spring of prosperity, the summer of temptation, and the winter of adversity. I'd like to look at these three seasons together. The spring of prosperity, 
the summer of temptation and the winter of adversity. First, the spring of prosperity. As you know, in spring, which we're enjoying now, everything is growing, flowers are in bloom, temperatures are warming up, the sun is shining, there's hope in the air, right? That's, that's spring, that's a feel of spring. When Joseph is sold as a slave to Potiphar's house, he experiences a spring of prosperity of sorts. He, he finds favor in the eyes of Potiphar, he becomes his attendant. Notice he is appointed to the privilege of working in the house, not in the fields. That was a privilege. He's put in charge of the household and everything that Potiphar owns. The writer tells us that except for his food, uh, he's put in, uh, in charge of everything. And, and that, that phrase, except for his food, might be just a figure of speech to say, except for his private affairs. Joseph was in charge of everything. And as Joseph was in charge of these things, God blessed the household of Potiphar. And so besides being a slave, Joseph's, Joseph's life couldn't be better at this point. He had, he's risen essentially to VP in Potiphar's house, the number two spot. The two words that describe Joseph's life in this season are in verses 2 and 3, prosperity and success. And the writer is clear about the reason for this prosperity and success. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Verse 3, the Lord gave him success in everything he did. To make it plain that the reason why Joseph was, was prosperous and successful was not because he was gifted and talented. Maybe he was, but that wasn't the, the root reason. Not because he was a hard worker. He might have been, but that was not the root reason that he was prosperous and successful. Not because he had the right connections, but because the Lord was with him. It's the same thing that Moses realized in the wilderness. The reason why this little tiny nation of Israel was able to defeat all her enemies, even much bigger enemies, was because God was with them. It wasn't because of their military prowess and might, because they were a very tiny nation. It's because the Lord was with them. And so when the Lord uh, threatened to withdraw his presence from his people because of their stiff necks and their sin, Moses understands the dire situation. He goes and pleads before the Lord and says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. We don't have a chance. If you don't go with us, we don't have a chance. There's nothing special about us if you don't go with us. And the writer's saying the same thing about Joseph. The reason for his prosperity and success is because the Lord is with him. Let's point out that God's presence is not limited to specific locations. It's not just in the, the promised land in Canaan. God is present in Egypt, in this foreign land to which Joseph has sold. God is present with Joseph even there in this distant land in Egypt, in Potiphar's house. God is present with Joseph. And it's, the interesting thing about this prosperity is even Potiphar recognizes the source of Joseph's prosperity. Even this Egyptian pagan recognizes that the Lord is with Joseph and gives him success. How, how is that? I mean, it's not because there's a, like a halo over Joseph's head. It's, it's not because like he wore Christian t-shirts all the time. I mean, I think that the reason why Potiphar knows is because Joseph must have told him. Joseph must have gone public with his faith with his own boss. And, and that's how Potiphar knew. That Joseph was a believer. And, and therefore, Potiphar could start connecting the dots. Oh, it's because the Lord is with you. 
that you're successful. Sydney McLaughlin, some of you will know that name because she's a Jersey girl. Uh, she grew up in Donellan, New Jersey, went to Union Catholic Regional High School in Scotch Plains. If you ran track in New Jersey between the years of 2013 and 2017, you would have seen Sydney at the state track meets. In July of last year, Sydney McLaughlin won her first world championship gold medal in the women's 400 meter hurdles in a world record time of 50.58 seconds. It was the fourth time she lowered her own world record. She's the first woman to run the race in under 51 seconds. And when NBC Sports was interviewing her after the race, she said this, I'll have to start off by saying all glory to God. These past few days getting ready for this race, Hebrews 4.16 has been on my mind, coming boldly to his throne to receive mercy and grace. I think he really gave me the strength to do it today, so all the glory goes to God. In past interviews, she had said, for a long time, track was who I was. But now more than ever, first and foremost, I'm a child of God. Track is not who I am. It's what I do. Sydney McLaughlin is in a season of prosperity in her track career. She's at the top, uh, at top of her game. And at the top of her game, in the midst of her prosperity and success, she acknowledges that God is the source. And in the same way, the writer of Genesis is making the same clear about Joseph. It's because the Lord is with him that he's doing so well, that he's so successful, that he's prosperous. And I wonder if we give God the credit when we are in a season of prosperity. Do we recognize that he is the source of our success when we are successful? See, if you view your life as a story, then it suggests that there is a storyteller. If life is not a random, happy accident, then there is a creator. And I wonder if you give him due. See, there's a lot we can't take credit for that contributes to who we are. I mean, we take, can't take credit for where we were born. We take, can't take credit for the family in which we were born, which shapes a lot of why we are here today and who we are. We can't take credit for any of that except for God. Do you recognize that God has a hand in your life? That's what uh, Genesis 39 is suggesting. There is a God behind it all. And evidence that you recognize God as a source of your prosperity is that your life is marked by gratitude and generosity. See, if it's not my prosperity, it's the prosperity that you gave me, Lord. You are able to be very generous with your prosperity. Because what do we have that we have not been given? We're not owners of what we have. We're stewards because God in his grace gave it to us. So that's how we trust God in the midst of a season of prosperity. Secondly, let's look at the summer of temptation. Summer, which is just around the corner, as you know, is filled with long and lazy days. It's filled with vacation. Um, it's filled with travel. Oftentimes, it seems like time slows down. It seems like we have more of time. And sometimes more of time means also more of temptation. Joseph finds himself in a season of temptation at the end of verse 6. The writer tells us that Joseph was well-built and handsome. The Hebrew says he was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. And here's the interesting thing. The only other person in Scripture that is described with both of these two terms is Joseph's mother, Rachel. As a way of suggesting that 
Joseph looked just like his mother, which would explain a lot of his favoritism from Jacob, for whom Rachel was his favorite wife. Because Joseph was well-built and handsome and now successful, she caught the eye, or he caught the eye of Potiphar's wife, who tries to seduce him in a not-so-subtle way. Come to bed with me, that's all she says. In the Hebrew, that's two words. It's more of a demand than a request. She's the mistress, and Joseph is the slave. And what you need to know is sexual promiscuity was a regular feature in slave societies. So Joseph could have been excused if he said, well, you know, when in Egypt, do as the Egyptians do. I mean, slaves got to do what slaves got to do. She's throwing herself at me after all, but he doesn't. He refuses. But Potiphar's wife speaks to him day after day after day. She pursues Joseph. This daily temptation. And most people would wear down over time. It's interesting. I think the writer is, is meaning for us to see a contrast in the way that people face sexual temptation with Genesis 38. Judah, if you were here last week, sees a pro prostitute by the side of the road and he gives in. There's no daily pressure. In fact, there's no pressure at all. He sees the opportunity. He goes right for it. Joseph, on the other hand, faces daily pressure day after day. Go to bed with me. Come to bed with me. And he daily refuses and resists. When the daily overtures fail, Potiphar's wife basically resorts to brute force. When Joseph is in the house attending to his duties and there's no one else in the house, Potiphar's wife seizes the opportunity and she catches Joseph by the cloak and says, come to bed with me. I think most would forgive Joseph for giving in. I mean, he, he's a slave. He, these are his orders. He could have said, I, I really had no choice in the matter. I was forced into this. I was basically a victim. But he doesn't do that. See, if you've ever been in a situation where your boss tells you to do something dishonest and you know it's dishonest, but your boss basically says, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. You understand the pressure that Joseph is facing. This is his boss's wife. And if he says no to her, he will probably lose his position. But Joseph says no. He leaves his cloak in her hand and runs out of the house. And so the million-dollar question in this passage is, is what enables Joseph to do this? I mean, again, most would wear down daily temptation like this. Most would rationalize, and there's a lot of ways that Joseph could have rationalized giving in to this temptation. But the writer of Genesis explains why Joseph resists temptation. Verse 8. He says, With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? See, what motivates Joseph is loyalty to, his, to Potiphar. He is grateful for all that Potiphar has done for him, lifting him up to the position of responsibility in which he's in. And so he knows it would be the ultimate betrayal to have an affair with his wife. And so it's loyalty to Potiphar that helps Joseph resist this temptation. And it's loyalty to God. He says in the heat of temptation, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In this moment, face to face with temptation, Joseph is aware of God's presence right there. 
Joseph lives his life, in other words, quorum Deo, before the face of God. God sees him before God. I can't, I can't do this before God. See, Joseph has this choice before him to satisfy Potiphar's wife and displease God or satisfy God and displease Potiphar's wife. And it can't be both. He knows it can't be both. So which is it? Joseph chooses to satisfy God. And there is a sense in this moment that Joseph has, has already thought about this. He's already formed his convictions. He didn't come up with this in the heat of the moment. He dropped his anchor already. He already knew his convictions. He knew where he stood. And so in the heat of, of temptation, he came up with this because he had thought about it before. My friends, if we haven't thought of it before, if we have no anchor to, to drop in the midst of temptation, where we'll be at the mercy of the waves of temptation. In the summer of temptation, in this season, it's the presence of God that enables Joseph to resist. One of the dangers of the Greek mythological world was uh, the sirens. Sirens were these beings that were able to sing so beautifully that sailors would hear their voice and could not resist being drawn to them. But there was danger. They were, the sailors would be seduced into guiding their ships too close to the shore to hear these songs, these, this beautiful music, and they would end up crashing their, their ships on the rocks and losing their lives. And so one mythological hero, Odysseus, faces this temptation by ordering his crew to put wax in their ears, to look neither to the left or to the right, to row for their lives. Meanwhile, Odysseus himself wants to hear the music. And so he lashes himself to the mast and he tells his men to not untie him no matter what he says until they're a safe distance away from the island. That's Odysseus' approach. There's another mythological hero, Jason, who faced a temptation in a different way. He brought along a man named Orpheus, who was a very skilled musician of great talent on the lyre and the flute. And so when they approached the sirens, Jason did not put wax in the ears of his crew and lash himself to the mast. He had Orpheus begin to play. Beautiful music, beautiful songs that Jason and his men would hear Orpheus's beautiful music and not pay attention to the sirens. I would suggest to you that Jason's approach is the more effective approach. See if, like Odysseus, you are drawn to the temptation, and, and truth be told, you want to get as close as you can without giving in. You will give in one day. But if you, like Jason, fill your ears with more beautiful music, you find a greater love, something more beautiful for your heart to embrace, you see the temptation weakens. If you show your heart something more beautiful and more attractive, and that's what Joseph is basically doing. He has a greater love for God in this moment. When, when, when Potiphar's wife is trying to bring him to bed, he finds something more beautiful. God, I'm before you. You are my greater love. How could I do this wicked thing before you? And my friends, the greater love and the greater affection drives out all lesser affections and lesser loves. In the summer of temptation, it's God's presence. It's that greater love that can hold us fast. Thirdly, let's look at the, the season of the winter of adversity. Winter, as you know, we're far away from it at the moment, but as winter, as you know, is filled with barren trees, cold temperatures, short days, 
there is a natural adversity to winter. I was raised in Chicago, so I, I know something about that. Joseph finds himself in a winter of adversity. Get this. Not because of his disobedience to God, but because of his obedience to God. See, Joseph obeys. He resists temptation. And because of that, he is unjustly accused. Potiphar's wife repeats this fabricated account out of um, uh, hurt feelings and and pride twice. She says to her her, uh, servants, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And then she repeats the story yet again to her husband, and this time blame shifts and says, the Hebrew slave that you brought here did this. And Potiphar burns with anger. And at first you think it's solely directed towards Joseph, but think about this. I mean, attempted rape is a capital offense. I mean, the, the, the punishment is immediate death. Potiphar doesn't put Joseph to death immediately. In fact, he just throws him into prison. And not just any prison, but a, prisoner, a prison for the king's prisoners. And it's just a hint that there might be more going on here. Perhaps Potiphar doesn't quite believe his wife's story. Perhaps he knows her proclivities and doesn't quite believe her. And perhaps this anger is not just directed at Joseph. Perhaps it's directed at his wife for, for ruining the household as she has done. But regardless of, of the dynamics between Potiphar and his wife, Joseph ends up right back in prison. As quickly as he rises, he falls. He's at rock bottom again because he obeys God. And many would get bitter towards God at this point. God, I'm trying to obey you. I'm trying to do the right thing. And this is what I get. God, if this is, if this is how you treat your obedient servants, I'm kind of done here. See, we oftentimes have this hidden, unspoken expectation that if we do the right thing, then God owes us. If we obey him, then he should prosper us. If I go to church every week, then he should answer my prayers and give me basically what I asked for. If I'm generous with my money and I tithe regularly, then you should make me a financially successful person, God. If I maintain sexual purity, then you owe me a spouse, God. If I serve you, God, for 10 hours a week, that's sacrifice for me, God. If I sacrifice for you, then you owe me a a life of smooth sailing. And then when adversity comes, we're challenged. And sometimes the motive of our hearts is revealed. Do we love God for himself no matter what? Or do we love God for what he can do for us? Like, God, I, you know, I, I love you when you can prosper me and make my life comfortable and give me what I want. But if adversity comes and suddenly you turn your back on God, it means we didn't really love God for him. We loved him, him for who, what he could do for us. And when those things which we were really worshiping are gone then God, you are just a means to an end. I don't, I don't need you anymore. Joseph, Joseph, as far as we can tell, does not grow bitter in this season of adversity, though it comes after prosperity. 
See, I think a lot of times we're okay if, if adversity comes first and then prosperity. We're like, I, I get that narrative. You know, I got to pay the price and endure this, and then I get this really good thing. But if adversity follows prosperity, the good thing, and then the drop-off, that's really hard. It's really disconcerting. But Joseph doesn't grow bitter because he knows the Lord's presence. Verses 21 to 23. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. My friends, a reminder that God is present with his people in Egypt, a foreign land, in Potiphar's house, and even in a forgotten place of prison. We learn from these verses that just because God is present in our lives, it does not mean we'll never face adversity or even injustice. Look at this. Joseph is unjustly in prison and the Lord is with him in the same sentence. See, God's promise to his people is not immediate rescue from the circumstances. His promise is his presence in the circumstances. And God is present with Joseph in prison. And even though Joseph cannot understand God's purpose in prison, God, why didn't you let this happen? doesn't mean there isn't a purpose. It just means we may not know it. Because God does have a purpose, and he will show his purpose in short order. We'll see it. The pathway to Pharaoh's palace goes through the prison. Joseph endures a season of adversity not because he knows why it's happening, but because he knows God's presence with him in it. We've been talking about Tim Keller passing away on Friday, and some of you know this because there's been a lot of tributes to Tim in his last moments after battling cancer for over two years, and uh, some of you have read this. I remind you of this moment. His son, Michael Keller, describes Tim's last moments. When he was at home in hospice care, they knew he didn't have much time left. Apparently, Tim waited until he was alone with his wife, Kathy, and these were apparently some of his last words. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. And then Kathy kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last breath in this world. The adversity of death is probably the greatest adversity any of us will ever face. And how can you look death in the face and say, there is no downside in this, not in the slightest? How do you say that? It's because of the Christian hope. Tim Keller knew the presence of God with him in the adversity of death. He knew that God would not abandon him to the grave. The Christian hope is that death for Tim Keller means going home and seeing Jesus face to face. And my friends, that's why there is no downside God's presence can sustain us in every season of life. I wonder what season you're in. Perhaps some of you are in a season of prosperity. Perhaps some of you are in a season of temptation. Perhaps some of you are in a season of adversity. And in all those seasons, 
God is the constant friend, the unshakable foundation, the indestructible hope, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of his people. As the question is, how can we know his presence? How can we be assured of God's presence with us in every season of life? I think it's this. Joseph in his life foreshadows a greater Joseph to come in Jesus Christ. As God was with Joseph through his life, so God was with Jesus through his life. As Joseph moved from his exalted position as favored son down to humbly becoming a slave in Egypt, even being thrown unjustly into prison only to be raised and exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, so Jesus moved from his exalted position as God's only son down to taking on flesh and becoming a human humbled even to an unjust death on a cross, only to be raised from the dead and exalted the right hand of the throne of God. As Joseph becomes a blessing to one nation on earth, so Jesus becomes a blessing to all nations on earth. As Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife to take a shortcut to power, so Jesus was tempted in the wilderness to take a shortcut to power. As the innocent Joseph was punished with prison, so the innocent Jesus was punished with death. As Joseph is a savior whom God raises up for Israel, so Jesus is a savior whom God raises up for all people. Such that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the savior whom God provides, who is humbled and exalted like Joseph, the better Joseph, for our sakes, we can know that the Lord is present with us in every season of life. In prosperity, we can know that we can recognize his hand that's giving the good gifts. All good gifts come from him. We can trace those gifts back to the giver and be filled with gratitude and generosity. In the midst of temptation, we can know that he's with us. And it's greater affection for him that helps us say no to lesser affections and loves. In adversity, we can know that Jesus is with us in the furnace. We can know that the, the, this adversity we're facing is not somehow punishment for our sins because Jesus took the punishment for our sins. So the adversity is not punishment. It's God's loving care. It's character development. It's sharpening. It's refining. It's because God is with us that we are enabled to sing our response song. Fear not, for I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you and help you and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. God can sustain his people by his presence. It's Jesus who says to his followers, I will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever season you are in, look to Jesus, the constant faithful friend. He's by your side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Joseph and the reminder that you are with us through Jesus Christ in every season of life. Lord, would you help us to know that, to know your presence, to recognize your presence in such a way that we are sustained, we have deep roots and can survive any season that this life throws at us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.